Yes. All right. All right. Excellent. I, I kind of had to squeeze it in there toward the bottom, but it'll work. How awake is everybody? You know, like at least 70% more above. Who's above 70%? One. We've got one hand. All right. <laughs> I'm thinking about how fast to try to work through all of this. And I have this reminder right up here where somebody wrote the word gentle and put a smiley face. And just because I'm at 71% right now doesn't mean I need to move too fast on everybody. Today we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 23 together. If you want to join me there in your copy of God's Word. And in this passage you're going to see Yahweh's appointed times here. And it's going to be the festivals that Israel would celebrate within that Mosaic Israelite covenant as a, a teaching tool to them and also as a testimony of God's salvation and eschatology or uh, end times sort of stuff, which includes not only like a timeline of how things work out in the end, but also personally and how God's redemption and judgment works out in history as well. So I titled this, the message for this chapter, Your Time Must Be Holy to Reflect God's Plan. As time belongs to God and He wants to reveal things within it, namely His plan, which we're going to see here through the festivals as we work through those, but that leads us to think about how do we use the time that belongs to God that He gave to us so that we reflect an understanding of his plan and communicate what he wants to convey through it to others by how we live and understand time. Let's start with considering God's creation plan as it begins in space and time. It begins in the beginning with God's people and God's land under God's blessing and rest where they're dwelling in his holy presence in a day which he made holy. And as we have discussed many times, rest is central in God's plan. You'll remember this from the first covenant in the Bible the Noahic Covenant, which is a reminder that God still has as his goal for his creation the entering into his rest. And the sign of that covenant was a, it was a war weapon with three letters. It starts with a B, bow. Yeah, and he hung it in the sky to show that you know, man deserves judgment, but entering into his rest is possible. And then the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to restore what was lost, namely God's people being in God's land under his blessing and rest. And he gave the sign of that covenant, which was 
circumcision, which was a looking forward to God cutting off what was old and bringing into the new, uh, especially the hearts of men, which that would need to happen so that things could be redeemed into his rest. Then in, later on in redemptive history, God gives the Mosaic Israelite covenant where it's a covenant that instructs about God's holiness and our sinfulness and our need for a God-man mediator to bring us into God's rest. And the sign of that covenant is the Sabbath. Yeah, the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was exclusive and unique to this covenant and particular to Israel. It would remind that God is the creator. He was the original rester and provider of everything in his creation. And as an instructive covenant and an instructive sign, it would teach Israel that they were outside of God's rest but needed to enter into it, but they only could if he provided for them somehow, which his provision would be you know, a lamb who would be a high priest, sacrifice, God, man, mediator who would bring them back into dwelling in God's rest. And that old covenant, as we sometimes call it, points forward to the new covenant, which they're both, they both have the goal of holiness. They're both pointing at God's holiness, but the new covenant provides the holiness that is needed. The old one says, you need it. The next one, the new covenant, provides it in the heart. And this happens, you know, as we see in the worship of Israel, it's pictured in the, the high priest entry into the tabernacle on the Day of Atonements, which was showing that, you know, if you can be in that guy, then you can go into that place and dwell there with holy God forever, but the high priest has to, to come out and make you holy and bring you in with him for it to work. Now, when it comes to understanding, you know, God's definition of holiness, one of the things we're seeing is that it's, you know, it's all-encompassing. Everything needs to be made holy. So he doesn't come and show up and magically just turn evil into good apart from absolute holiness. So when it comes to, you know, understanding good, God's definition of good is holy. So we don't think, well, I think that this would be good. And it's like, well, good is holy. Those ideas are inseparable. So therefore, we understand God's rest to be operating in good, holy blessing. These concepts all tie together. And God's good holiness is seen in the purpose of the law, which pointed out Israel's sin and the goodness of him punishing their sin as well. So when we think about you know, a new creation where God and his goodness makes everything holy and he punishes sin and rids of it in the old creation and brings us into the new creation, you know, we often think of it, well, that'll be a perfect place. It's like, well, what is 
God's idea of perfect. You know, for some of us, we think, well, perfect would be like fishing and mountain biking forever and being able to, to fly and walk through walls and stuff. And maybe you'll get to do all of that stuff in that day. Uh, we don't want to take the concept of holy out of perfect. You know, God's idea of perfect and the new heavens and earth is holy. So we see God's holiness has a purpose. The purpose of this holiness is to show God's plan in God's time, which I mean that in a couple of ways because time belongs to God and he's revealing things within time in his timing as he's laid it out. So God's holiness has a purpose to show us God's plan and God's time with the time that he's given to us, which leads us to want to use the time that he's given to us for his will, for what he wants us to do with it. You might think of Ephesians 5, 15 to 17 here, where it says, Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, you know, here at this last half of Leviticus, what we're, the big concept is the walk of holiness with the Lord. It's like, well, how do we walk holy with Him? Well, we need to use time rightly. We need to use time in accordance with His will and what God wants to reveal through that. So the cycle of time shows the progression of history from beginning to end. And God shows, you know, the plan of his salvation through his festivals here that are revealed in Scripture. And the first one that we're going to, to look at is the Sabbath. This is the big, all-encompassing, all-engulfing of all of the others festival, the Sabbath in 23 one through three. So let's read that text together. And Yahweh spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The appointed times of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to Yahweh in all your places of habitation. So here the, the Sabbath is tied to God's rest. And it looks in the past, in creation, to God's rest then. It looks at the present reality with Israel and them being outside of God's rest and needing to enter into it, but it also points forward to the reality that this is going to be the culmination of history. Now, the, the train of time starts in God's rest and will end in God's rest. Now, that's the promise of the Noahic covenant. So, as we 
consider these things, we want to think about how this brings us to think about God and worship God in relation to the past, the present, and the future. So this is obviously complicated, right? <laughs> you start getting into this and you're like, oh, wow, this involves a, a lot of different things. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see if we can make some advances in understanding these things together. And uh, we would expect in studying an eternal God to never reach the end of learning about him. And that's just how it works, which also means you'll never reach the end of enjoying him and discovering new things. So don't think, oh, this is too hard and despair, but think there's more to be discovered and I can only get happier. <laughs> as you know, in the past, as we mentioned, God's rest is first mentioned in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, but the sons of Israel aren't introduced to Sabbath observance until Exodus 16. This is where we hear about a Sabbath observance for the first time when God gave bread from heaven on the sixth day, which would be sufficient for the Israelites resting on the seventh day not needing to gather any provision for resting in God because he had graciously provided everything that they would need to rest in him and have fellowship with him as his people on that day. There's a lot of things I'm just going to kind of have to allude to how it works out because if I uh, try to explain it, we'll never make it to the end. <laughs> but if you have some questions like, hey, this sounds like this thing, uh, you're welcome to, to ask if it might be that thing, and I'll try to help you the best I can. <laughs> Yahweh gave multiple Sabbaths as a sign within the Mosaic Covenant between him and Israel throughout their generations that they would know that he is Yahweh who makes them holy. You know, that was the point of the Sabbath, to show that they needed that, and he's the one who does that. And he taught them this under the administration which he delegated through the Mosaic Israelite covenant. And these Sabbaths, as we have discussed, they point back to God as creator, but forward to Yahweh as redeemer. And the Saturday Sabbath in particular was a reminder of enjoying God as the creator who provides for all of his creation and sustains it. You may recall how the law models God's holiness, and this holiness, again, has a purpose. It's to show us God's plan and God's time with the time that he's given us. Therefore, our time must be holy to reflect his plan, which is why I gave you this title, because I know it's a really long sentence to digest. So the cycle of this time is showing the progression of history from beginning to end. So you think about, you know, the beginning of creation, but then you see the beginning of these festivals starts in the Passover. It starts with redemption and it ends with the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which has to deal with man moving from temporary dwelling to permanent dwelling in him. 
So you can see how that works out in God's timeline. It moves from you know, redemption to rest in his presence, from something that's temporary to something that's permanent. And the Sabbath principle informs you know, all of these other festivals. And if you think, I want to understand these things, recall these things, learn about them a little bit more, my book recommendation is Holiness to the Lord, a guide to the exposition of the book of Leviticus by Alan P. Ross. Uh, when it comes to things that you could read on the Sabbath, he has a little chapter here on these verses, which is one of the best things I've ever read on it. So, you want to study that a little bit further? You're just looking for another devotional book to have on the shelf and work through? I recommend this one. This Sabbath, as it said here, you, you read this phrase, a, a Sabbath of complete rest, which is... You know, translating this phrase, it's using the word Sabbath twice. It's a, you know, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. You know, the Sabbath that ends all other Sabbaths in the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath of complete rest. And this looks forward to the Lord Jesus who would say to weary and heavy laden people from their labors and toils and this life when he came and he says, I will give you rest. It's like, well, who does this? Who, who's the rest bringer? Jesus says, I'm that guy. And he also, as you know, he referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. It's like, it's my day. It's my rest. I do what I want with it. I can heal people on it. I can make them whole. I can eat my food, which I made, and share it with my disciples. It's my Sabbath. I do what I want with it. That's not how he said it, but... <laughs> It communicates the idea. And uh, those ideas are found in Matthew, Matthew 11 and 12. And Christ comes to be the one who fulfills the Sabbath of the Mosaic Covenant to bring people into the rest that is found for those who have restless hearts in the New Covenant. Much the Sabbath, which was on Saturday, is not to be confused with Sunday, which is a different day and a different celebration that we, we have since the, the Sabbath is nullified, but we, we worship on the day that our Lord was resurrected, which is Sunday, the eighth day. So the way that we celebrate time as holy is by prioritizing and enjoying fellowship which historically the way that we have done that as Christians in the church is to gather on Sundays. You see, that's what believers did in the New Testament, and that's continued throughout history. But this celebrating time as holy also means prioritizing things like this class, discipleship training class. Uh, it would include things like even our members meeting last week, you know, why, why prioritize that particular thing and make a point to be a part of it? It's like, well, because time is holy and we want to use our time and the things that are dedicated to the Lord, which also in the use of our time, we want to bring, you know, the gifts that God has given us to 
serve one another and to use our time in those sort of ways. And you could continue to add on to that list and how we use our, our time and the time that God has given us, the gifts that he has given us and fellowship and discipleship and evangelism within the world. Now looking at the Passover feast here, we're right here. And that, this first festival under the Sabbath is the Passover slash unleavened bread festival, which is combined together, which we've looked at this in more detail in the past and how it ties into the concept of redemption through the substitu substitutionary sacrifice of a lamb, but also this idea of repentance where you're purging out the leaven from your house. You're purging out the old way of life and walking in the new way of life, which you may recall 1 Corinthians 5, 8, and 9, where Paul talks about Christ, our Passover. That's he's our redemption. He says, therefore, Purge out the old leaven. He says, keep being repenters. Don't just look back at that one day when you repented in the past. Keep repenting and be reminded when you celebrate the Passover or for us, the Lord's Supper. Now, the Passover would begin on the 14th day of a month called Nisan. I think that's how you pronounce that. And the following day would begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th through the 21st in that same month. Now, God's plan for time, you know, it culminates in the goal of rest on a holy day that we know that man fell out of that rest. So when it comes to God revealing step one in how does God bring man back into his rest, step one is Passover. It's redemption. And repentance from dead works. It's Passover and unleavened bread. And for Israel, this brought them into remembering God's past redemption to bring them into a present thankfulness for what he would done, had done in the past, which would bring them to want to purge out the sin that he was delivering them from, but also to look forward in the future to a coming high priest, a, a perfect substitute sacrifice who would accomplish what was pictured in the worship system that they had. And as we have discussed, this develops into another Lamb Supper, which is the Lord's Supper, which when Christ was to ratify the new covenant and to bring us from the old into the new, on Passover, he developed the Passover into the Lord's Supper and ratified the new covenant in his blood. And so, similar to Israel, we look back in the past at God's redemption, but we look back to the cross and Christ is our Passover. But in the present, you know, it's a reminder that we're thankful for what he has done for us. But it's not a thankfulness that just exists in our minds. It's a thankfulness that exists in our lives and that we continue to purge out sin. We can continue to repent so that we have a greater faithfulness to, to Him. You know, our thankfulness is 
realized in a continuing to turn toward him and a continuing to be sanctified in him, a continuing to grow in obedience to him. And how does this also relate to the future? And that we look forward to the what? The marriage feast of the Lamb, Jesus' second coming. You know, I, I refer to it as the, the third exodus, the third Lamb Supper in the Bible. So we have a, you know, similar to Israel, we're looking back at the, the past, the present, and the future. We learn from these festivals that all time belongs to God. Days, weeks, months, years, everything. And these feasts were memorials that, which would pass on Israel's spiritual heritage. You'll remember back in Exodus how when they would celebrate the Passover, you know, they would have little lammy in the house, and then the kids would be like, oh, Dad, we love little lammy. Why are you going to kill lammy today? <laughs> He's, and Yahweh told him, explain to your sons you know, the theological significance of the Passover. So it's like there's this built-in curiosity to the whole thing, and why are we doing this? And it's like, so dads can disciple their children in the Lord's instruction to teach them about his redemption and the hope that they have in God and the reason that they sacrifice and deny themselves for the worship of Yahweh. So this was to disciple their children, but also to remind them personally to continue in repentance and to remember the redemption that is coming in the future so that holiness and hope would be tied together in their minds continually by the holidays that they had throughout the year. The next feast that we see is here in 23 verses 9 to 22, which has a bunch of different titles, which is why it's so hard to keep up with. First fruits, we call it first fruits. It's also called the Feast of Weeks because there's a lot of weeks involved in it. And in Greek, it's called Pentecost, which means 50. It refers to the 50 days of this whole feast. So I put those slashes there and put them all together so that you know that they go together. In this particular feast, it was tied to the, the harvest that they would have. Uh, you could think of this as their, their income. You know what the Lord had provided for their work. It was something that they were to bring in thanksgiving to God and to share with others. And verse 15 there it says, you shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall bring a new grain offering near to Yahweh. So you have a seven times seven plus 50 that's happening here that's tied into this concept of there being a harvest and something that's raised to the Lord and praise to Him for His provision. This 
festival. The first fruits was celebrated on the 16th of Nisan, which you're like, I have never lived in that month that I know of, at least was <laughs> cognizant of it. So what does this mean to me? Passover was on Friday, unleavened bread was on Saturday, first fruits was on Sunday. This is how this worked, which you're like, now that sounds familiar to me. This is like Good Friday, when we remember redemption, repentance, Saturday, of the unleavened bread and purging out sin, and then the first fruits, Sunday, which was resurrection day. So Passover, we have redemption on Friday. Unleavened bread, Saturday, repentance. First fruits, third day, resurrection. Here in the First Testament, this was a reminder of, to Israel of their dependence on God in the, the past and in the present of his kindness to always provide what they needed to draw his people into an attitude of gratitude and also into an expectant hope. It's like, well, if he's been faithful in the past and he doesn't change, he's going to be faithful in the future too. This was a day just to reiterate that point. And they showed thanks to, to God for his provision by giving back to him the things that he had given to them to show that they trust him to provide. It's like, well, the reason that we have all of this stuff that we can share and give is because God has given it to us. And the reason that we have trash bags to take out is because he's given us an abundance because we had more than we even needed. So that's just a devotional thought for next time you take out the trash. It's like the reason I have trash is because the Lord has provided more than I needed. And this ties into the newer testament and our motivation to give of our earnings. We've talked about this from 2 Corinthians 8. You know, the motivation for the sharing of gift between two churches was based on you know, what they were taught in 2 Corinthians 8 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And so there's a theological motivation and underpinning to why we give of our income. And Paul goes on to teach in that chapter, he says, For this is not for the relief of others and for your affliction, your affliction but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack. But you might remember we talked about the whole concept of you know, why would they leave gleanings out in the field you know, the, to the person who had an abundance out in their field? It's like, well, this was for... The, bro the brother who was lacking to show that you guys need to have needs 
among one another so that God can have a picture of grace among you where he shows that he graciously provides more than is needed to some, but he also graciously meets the needs of those who are in need to bring about a unified thanksgiving together in worship so that there can be a picture of God's generous grace among his people. But it also gave an opportunity for the person who had an abundance to show the proof of genuine love to God, which is the point that Paul's making in that section. And he clearly states it toward the end of chapter 8. He says, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. He's saying, you know, show show the legitimacy of your salvation and thanksgiving to God by giving to others what he has given to you based on the reasoning that Christ has been generous with his grace toward you. Was that digestible? It's in 2 Corinthians 8 if you want to think about it a little bit more. And this festival in the Greek was referred to as Pentecost, which we know as the day in which God poured out what? Yeah, his spirit on the church. So you see, Passover redemption is tied in to Pentecost resurrection joined together by the days in between, and it connects to Christ's promise to give an advocate. You remember this toward the end of John chapters 14 and 16. He told the disciples he wouldn't leave them as orphans. He's going to send an advocate who is the spirit of truth. And this happened in what chapter in the Bible? Acts chapter 2, which... Before you know it, Dave is going to be preaching that chapter, however long it takes him to get through chapter one. So uh, on that particular day, we read that there was a harvest of about, well, of 3,000 souls who were the first church members. And this was all by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit The Passover death is the death that reverses death, and it brings life. One of the analogies that's given us in Scripture is to talk about, you know, a, a plant dies, and the seed falls off, and from that seed, new life comes. Oh, now all of you want to be gardeners. That's all right. And you see that it's theological, devotional. This term, first fruits, as you know, it's used of believers in Scripture. In Romans 8, Paul talks about, you know, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. You know, we groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, there's this longing for, well, Lord, continue to bring more harvest until you brought in all 
of the harvest and you bring us into the Sabbath that ends all Sabbaths. It's also used to speak of Christ's resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, where in 15.20, Paul by the Holy Spirit writes, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that's like the seed who was put in a tomb, who resurrects and gives life to future seeds being planted and then entombed and resurrected which gives way to more and more harvest until the final harvest, which brings us to from spring to fall in the calendar and the Feast of Trumpets slash ingathering, which is my... Uh, our alliteration for in, in gathering is roundup. That's the best one I could come up with. But it's roundup and retribution. Because when the trumpet sounds, it's not only a calling together of the military, but it's the sound that battle is coming as well. And we see that throughout Scripture. And this day for Israel, it marked the end of the agricultural year. You know, it's the end of the harvest, and so everybody is brought together in God's harvest. The trumpets are sounded together in God's people to celebrate God's rest within this holy month. Once you look at verse 23 here, it says, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have rest, a memorial by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. And the trumpets represented the voice of God calling his people to himself. Which we'll see more about this in Numbers 10. And this opened up a whole month where people were thinking about sins that they needed to repent of, a month of seeking pardon for those sins, but also celebrating the reality of restoration to God through Him providing the forgiveness that they would need through the sacrifice that He had given in order to connect them into His rest. And it was a time for, you know, this whole month they ceased from all earthly labors to worship God with all that they were and all that they had. And as this, the significance of this day builds into the New Testament, we hear again how trumpets are linked to God's ingathering of His people and judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 24, He will send forth His angels and with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branches already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. 
and we will be changed. Also, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And you read of several trumpets sounding in Revelation 8 through 9 and judgment following those. God's trumpet in gathering, as we see here, is a call into rest for some and retribution for others, which brings God's rest to everything. The way that he brings his rest is by bringing his people into it, but also getting rid of everything that's against it and in opposition to it, which is tied into the next festival, the Day of Atonements, which we've looked at in detail when we studied Leviticus 26. This was a day of removal and reset. It was a day of how to teach how sin was removed and to reset the worship system so that everything was you know, being signified as being without sin because of what God did with the get-in goat and the get-out goat. You know, remember that. There's the, the goat that within this celebration, there was the goat that was to get into the dwelling place of God to connect you there. And then there's the get-out goat that goes out east forever. And you never read about it ever again <laughs> in the Bible after Leviticus 16. The scapegoat is never mentioned again. And it says of this day also that it was a Sabbath of complete rest. So it's like, well, how do we get to the Sabbath that ends all Sabbaths? It's like, well, the day of atonements has to be fulfilled. It has to happen to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath that ends all Sabbath because everything becomes that in the future. And the people, as you read... Uh, they were to humble their souls to come into it. And you see that throughout this section of Scripture. Uh, verse 32, for example. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening. You shall keep your Sabbath. It was a day in which they would cease from their works and rest in God's sanctification. And something that I've wanted to tell you about some of the stuff that I just haven't known where else I would put it in my notes and teach it is a footnote in a book that I can't remember the title of it right now, but it, the title is something like, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? The author's last name is Morales, and it's found on page 219. <laughs> and this is what he says. This is a helpful thing that I wanted to, to tell you about, about the, the Day of Atonement. He, he writes, One may think of the sacrificial cultus. He means the sacrificial worship here is establishing a system of credit. So 
you know, when we think of it, you know, some people confuse these sacrifices and thinking they actually took away sin, but they didn't. It was like they were using a credit card. You know, they're swiping their credit card on the Day of Atonement, and it says the, the Israelite did receive true spiritual goods because, you know, with the credit card, you get the stuff in faith that there will be a future payment for it, but you get to enjoy it now. You see how that works? Which they, you know, back to the quote, the Israelite received true spiritual goods, including forgiveness, through the purification offering. But the real payment of the accumulated debt awaited the son's crucifixion. So it's like, you know, they could swipe the credit card, enjoy forgiveness now, trusting that Jesus was going to pay the bill for them. Yeah, it works like that. I thought that was a good analogy. That's uh, helpful. You can store that away for evangelizing somebody or uh, gently admonishing your brother or sister in Christ that just didn't know that quite yet. So, <laughs> the Day of Atonements here, you've heard me say that. This is uh, this section Scripture, it talks about this day uh, in the plural. It's the Yom HaKippurim. And what's significant about that is that it's not uh, atonement that God would bring just to man, but atonement that would be made in a sense for the land, which are, you know, we had talked about how uh, atonement doesn't always have to deal with the cleansing of sin, but the dedication of things to the Lord. So God's going to bring everything into dedication to Him, which where understanding the fulfillment of prophetic things in the Bible gets complicated is that there's partial fulfillments <laughs> throughout it that you see, one, this day of atonements, that it's partially fulfilled by the Isaiah 53 suffering servant when he comes, which is the Christ, and he dies in our place and makes atonement for his people in his first coming. But the day of atonements is fully fulfilled in his second coming when he totally removes all sin. It's not just the redeeming of people, but you know all sinners who refuse to repent and so be saved because they would not love the truth and Turn to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And interestingly, this prophetic reality is also fulfilled for Israel in the future, which I think we have time to look at in Romans 11.25. I want you to see that here. So listen to how Paul writes about the future fulfillment of the Day of Atonements for Israel here. He says, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Here you read that God is going to fulfill the day of atonements, but you see there's a portion of it, it's like it hasn't been totally fulfilled. It's fulfilled in stages which are connected to Christ, the atoner's first and second coming. So put that somewhere in your eschatology. <laughs> Lastly, we're going to look at the Feast of Booths. Oh, question, question. Yes. Yeah, this is all also translated, you know, humbling themselves, which is like, you know, it, it's carrying across the idea of self-denial. You're going to have to give up things to be a part of this. Uh, you're going to have to deal with your backwards affections toward God. Uh, you're going to have to deal with uh, an, an unglorified Wonter not working the way that it should. <laughs> so you put, you know, afflict slash humble slash deny yourself is the concept with that word. I thought you were going to ask me a really super hard question about eschatology, so I, I feel better now. Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Leviticus 23, 33 to 44 talks about the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which has to deal with residing uh, with the rest bringer. You know, it has, it's connected to these temporary dwelling places that look forward to a permanent dwelling place. It looks you know, back at the living temporarily in Egypt which didn't last forever. God brought you out of that to live in the wilderness, which was also temporary, so that one day you would live in the tabernacle because everything would become the tabernacle and that would be the permanent place. So what they did was on this day, which was five days after the day of atonements that you know Israel would build flimsy, temporary structures to live in for seven days. And this is the reason why, which is found in verse 43. It says, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. So that they would have a reminder of the temporariness of Egypt, so that they would have gratitude for being set free from that slavery. And 
And verse 40, it says, you shall be glad. You know, he's commanding them to rejoice because uh, we need that to be said to us sometimes to remind us that, you know, the kindness of our king who commands us not only to humble ourselves but also to rejoice. He didn't say, humble yourselves and just be grumpy that you got to celebrate all this fun stuff with everybody. He's like, be glad in it. You know, these are joyful things to look forward to. You know, look what God has done for you and look at the reality of this fellowship you have and think about the reality that's to come when everything is reconciled in your God and we move into that permanent dwelling place when the former things are no more. We read also in this section that it's a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day day. This is this idea of a seventh-day Sabbath that looked forward to an eighth-day Sabbath, which would be the beginning of the end of all Sabbaths, where a new kind of week would begin where just every, every day is the Sabbath. So Passover, as we see, is the beginning of the festivals, but Booths is the almost ending because Booth celebrates God bringing Israel into the promised land where he's teaching them within this teaching model of their worship to look back in the past at their present and to give a, a model of the future which moving forward just a little bit when you get to Nehemiah chapter 8 you, you finally see Israel celebrate the Feast of Booths, when I first read this in Leviticus, I thought, when, is, when did they ever celebrate this? You just keep reading the Bible. It's like, come on, guys, celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it's like, Nehemiah. It's like, this took a long time, but they did it once. In <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 8, the Israelites were not very good at keeping the law, by the way, which was the point of the law to point out that you don't do these things. You should. But you need God to fulfill the things that he has commanded you to do in order to enter into his rest. And in Nehemiah 8, in the building of the temple, you know, they celebrated this with how God had commanded them and even with the heart attitude that they were to worship with. But the day isn't totally fulfilled until it's celebrated when God really brings Israel home from exile so there's this picture when it is actually fulfilled and it is still going to be celebrated again in the future. We're having a, there's another really huge break in time where it's like, well, when are we going to celebrate the Feast of Booths? It's coming and you're going to be there. It, it's going to be like that first time around, but what God's going to do is in the second time around, he's going to totally bring them out of exile forever but you can remember, you know, Peter, when he saw Jesus transfigured, there's this picture of his second coming glory right in front of him. Moses is there. Elijah is there, which would make Peter think about the three parts of his Hebrew Bible. You know, there's Moses representing the law, uh, Elijah, the prophets, and Jesus is the writings. You know, he's, he's the king who we enjoy. He's like, this is it. 
we're, fi- we're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths finally. And this is going to be the last time that we do because we're going to move from the temporary stuff into the permanent stuff. Moses, I'm going to REI right now. I'm going to get you a tent and you, Elijah, too. And it says, and while he was talking, the Lord said. You know, he just interrupts him. I like that part, too. <laughs> but you can get the, you know, the excitement over the, the, the moment that you can see, you know, Peter, you know, he under, there was a lot of things he didn't understand in the Bible at that point. But that was one of those things that he understood pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, in Nehemiah 8 and again in Revelation is when it comes back. If there is another time in between those and somebody finds it, you can let me know. You can just tell me I was wrong and I will afflict and humble and deny myself. So within the the teaching model of Israel's worship, you see uh, holiness in our time teaches, well, it was teaching them God's plan presently for them. You know, they would look in the past at how God had provided for them. In the present, it would remind them that God hasn't changed in his character at all. Just like he was faithful to provide for us then, he's being faithful right now and providing for us now just like we have branches and stuff to, to build these uh, temporary booths. We know that he's going to be faithful in the, the future to bring us into something better than these little tree houses that we have. There's going to be a permanent dwelling in, in him. So they look forward to the future where uh, God will fulfill his plan by providing the ultimate provision which will last forever, which I'm going to read to you about that from Zechariah 14. You can write this in your notes. This is Zechariah. It's really talked about in Zechariah 12 through 14, but I'm going to read to you from chapter 14, verses 16 to, to 19, which ties into our understanding of the millennial kingdom. He's the prophet by the Spirit writes this, then It will be that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which Yahweh plagues the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So you can see how this, uh, the, the trumpets ties into separating out the sheep from the goats, which is how God's atonement works and divides you either into dwelling with him permanently or apart from him permanently. So in a sense, we, we live in 
springtime here, and we're awaiting the fulfillment of all of the fall festivals. The fulfillment of all of this is found in Revelation 21.3 where it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's the fulfillment of it in Revelation 21.3. And... If you have a MacArthur Study Bible and you look in Leviticus 23, there's a super cool chart on how Christ fulfills Israel's feast. Commend that to you. But to come to a conclusion in this lesson, these festivals show that God has control over all time. You know, God doesn't exist outside of it, but He's with it. He's with time. He made it, and he made it for his purpose. It all belongs to him, and he's carrying out his sovereign plan, which he has ordained, and this is how it, how it works. You know, this is the timeline of how God's salvation plan works out through history. And one day, we'll all celebrate the Feast of Booths, as we read in Zechariah chapter 14, and we'll all move from being exiles from God's kingdom to not just having citizenship cards into that kingdom, but the kingdom's going to, to come here, and the Son is going to deliver it, and our citizenship will be realized on every square inch of the new earth, and the only gathering that there will ever be is God's gathering. There will be only rejoicing Peace will pervade, and the prosperity of all of the grain in the barn will exist, and all of the sheep being in the fold will be realized under the reign of the shepherd warrior king forever. And as I ended my study of this, I was brought to think of how Paul ended in thinking of the realities of the culmination of these things in Romans 11 when he said, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be repaid to Him? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our gracious Lord, we praise you and are in wonderment of these things which we have a, a limited understanding of and it sparks a, a curiosity and wonderment and the greatness of your plan and bringing it within history and executing it perfectly. It gives us motivation to live holy to you with how we use our time today and every day until the day when all time is holy to you 
in everything that we are and the gifts that you have given us are holy to you. We pray that you would help us to be a people who live lives which give a faint picture of that day that we will live in forever, pointing others toward that holy day that you will bring, which has no evening and no morning, because it is a day that will last forever. Amen.